0: Right. Will you open us in prayer, please?
1: Yeah. Uh, Heavenly
2: Father, we, uh, we come together as a group, uh, just to, to glorify Your name, to get to know You better, to develop our relationship with You. I ask that our hearts would be open to Your Word tonight, Lord. That it would pierce us. Uh, that just your Holy Spirit would would convict us of where we need to make change or where we maybe need to see you differently. Father, let this be a time of growth, that we may grow in
0: you and become more like you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. So today's message is, I believe in God, but I don't think he's fair. And so my story, thank you for sharing all of yours. I do kind of feel like mine is a uh, very low-key in comparison. Not that I've had not had greater unfair things happen to me, but um, this is the one I chose to share for tonight. Mine was kind of similar to yours, Corey, in that um, I grew up pretty poor. I didn't realize I was poor because I had great parents who hit it really well. Um, But there were times where it came up, and one of those times was uh, sports at school, and uh, we had mandatory sports periods, and you had to play something. It was during school hours, so you couldn't get out of it, Um, but you had to have the equipment for it, and my parents couldn't afford anything, Um, and so they basic the only option i had was to play chess that was like the only thing i could do um because they could buy like a super super cheap this big magnetic chess set from the grocer um and so i started playing chess and initially i wasn't really good at it but over time uh i got some advice from one of my parents and they're like you should only play against the kids that you can't beat like don't play against the ones that you can beat, just play against all the ones that you lose against because they're so good and I was about second grade when this started so I started doing that, I started playing against all these kids who were so much better than me and I lost and I lost and I lost and I lost Um, but eventually I started to win a little and then I'd lose like nine games and then I'd win one, lose nine, win one, lose eight, win two, um, and slowly I got really good. And I eventually was, um, the top junior chess player. And so in South Africa, we have, uh, we only have primary school and high school. We don't have middle school. So we have uh, primary school from first to seventh grade, and we have high school from eighth to 12th and, uh, primary school was divided into juniors and seniors and juniors were first, to third grade and seniors were fourth to seventh grade. Um, and so by the time I was in third grade, I was the best chess player out of the the juniors. And so I won the trophy at the end of the year for the best junior chess player, but I took my chess really seriously. And so I started playing against everyone. Eventually it was too easy to play against the kids my age. So the next year I just started playing against all the seniors that were better than me and and I beat them and I beat them and I beat them until eventually i played against like the number one seventh grader and i started to beat him regularly and so i was undefeated and i thought well come end of the year i'm i know i'm only in fourth grade but i'm a senior and i'm the best senior therefore i will get the trophy and uh prize giving came and i was really excited And they called out the junior chess trophy and the junior that won one. And then I was like, yes, next one is mine. And they called out the guy who was in seventh grade that I'd beaten over and over and over and over to get the trophy. And I was so mad. I thought it was the most unfair situation because I beat him fair and square multiple times. He was not the best. Yet just because I was fourth grade and he was seventh grade, I think they felt awkward giving the award to a younger student. And I just, I wasn't happy with it. And it didn't matter. All the other awards I won that night did not matter because all I could think about was the chess trophy that I didn't win. And a lot of you've shared stuff tonight that you felt is unfair. And I know that we could literally spend this entire Bible study going over example after example of of situations that we didn't feel were fair. And as Christians, we have this God that is supposed to be all powerful and all knowing and can do anything he wants. And so when something unfair happens to us, it's kind of hard not to play a blame game, right? I serve you. You're great. You're mighty. You're powerful. You can do anything you want. Uh, So why don't you? Like, why do you let these unfair things happen? And that is a very simple question, but it is also a extremely deep theological question. It has lots of, if I had to write a book on it, it'd have a lot of of chapters and sub-chapters because you literally have to cover a lot of ground with what it means for God to be fair or unfair. And I can't do that all tonight, but I'm hoping I can cover a good amount of ground and hopefully it'll give us a little bit more perspective. Um, one of the things that I thought about when preparing for this was that we often think about how unfair life is to us, but I wonder how often we consider the fact that God himself experienced multiple situations that were unfair towards him. Um, And I've written down some examples. I'm not going to read the scriptures, uh, but hopefully you'll know the stories. Uh, First situation that was really unfair. Here's a God who everything belongs to him. He's seated on a throne. He has angels around him, serving him, worshiping him, perfectly um, administering his will 24-7. No one backchats. No one complains. Everything is perfect. His throne is made of whatever, gold, jewels. He's living in a perfect place. Um, and he comes down to earth to live a nomadic, impoverished life. Scripture said he had no place to lay his head. Like he didn't have a home. When he was performing his ministry, he was homeless. Um, He, he, coming from a king, he's now living what we could equate to an impoverished life. Like he, he didn't have a job when he was walking around preaching. He didn't know where his next meal was coming from. The disciples and him would walk from town to town. Sometimes people would let them into their houses. Sometimes they wouldn't. And so here was a God who had everything yet had to live in a situation where he basically had nothing. Um, Pretty unfair. Um, Next thing, here was a God who was constantly ridiculed for no reason. Jesus did nothing wrong, yet constantly he had people complaining about him, people lying about him, um, people trying to get him in trouble, people reporting him to the Pharisees for teaching false things and claiming false things about himself. And so he was constantly being ridiculed for no reason whatsoever. And that's pretty unfair. Um, Here was a man who was left behind... By his friends, he was abandoned by his friends constantly again, for no reason. Jesus never did anything wrong to anyone ever, and yet his own friends, his disciples abandoned him and i'm not just speaking about um you know the night when Jesus was arrested. We have accounts in scripture of uh when Jesus was referring to um he was Speaking about his death to come in metaphorical language. But he was speaking about, you know, anyone who doesn't eat his flesh and drink his blood has no place in him. And it was offensive. And I mean, in a way, I can understand that might sound shocking. Here's a guy who says, if you don't become a cannibal, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. It might have been shocking for some people. But um, it says that after he said that, many who were following him left him. And only the 12 were left. And I don't know how many were following him at that point. I tried to research it last night. Unfortunately, my chronological Bible is somewhere in the ocean being shipped from South Africa to America. And it's going to take four months to get here. So I don't know where it is right now. So it was a bit hard for me to like place things on a timeline. But there was a time where Jesus had uh, 70 to 82 disciples following him depending whether the 12 were counted in the seventy named in scripture or not um what book am i speaking about the bible Diana. Like my chronological bible it's like the bible but they reorder everything so that it it hap it, it's written in the order that everything happened so it mixes all the gospels together so you literally like read the same parable three times in a row and and so on um does that answer your question yes no maybe okay i'm mute and ask me it's okay <laughs> it's interactive you can talk to me you're muted <laughs> okay <laughs> okay it. Okay. ask your question Uh, the the eat his blood, the the space drink his blood. I think it's in yeah. John six. Corey, I feel like if anyone would know where it is offhand, it would be you. Uh, is it in? You're on, you're on mute. It's John.
2: It's John. Uh,
0: six fifty-six.
2: It's, there we go. John, six, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was gonna look it up. There it's fine. Aha, my Bible app does come in handy, Cassandra.
1: Okay,
0: thank you, Rachel. Uh, All right, Um, so there was a stage where he, at the very minimum, had 70 of his disciples following him. And he sends them out, they go and they preach. But we know that whether or not they were part of that group that abandoned him after he said this, sounding cannibalistic but not really cannibalistic statement we know that by the end he only had the 12 with him so I can imagine Jesus was in a situation where people would like him follow him and then abandon him and then more people would come like him for a while and then abandon him and that wasn't fair like he did nothing wrong can you imagine having Jesus as your friend like he would never say anything wrong he would give you the best advice always available why would you abandon this perfect man that's unfair to him like he didn't do anything wrong um then it goes besides being abandoned here was a perfect man a perfect god who was betrayed by a close friend this is a friend who he allowed to follow him and the others around even though he knew he was stealing from them this was a disciple that he showed the same love and affection as he did the others. He got to see firsthand all Jesus' miracles, listened to all his teachings. He had every reason to be a perfect disciple, a best friend to Jesus, yet he betrayed him to death. That's unfair. Then we have Jesus taken into, uh, he's, he's imprisoned, he's beaten. He didn't do anything deserving of it. He had committed no crime and he was beaten and he was killed. That's not fair. A perfect God who did nothing wrong should not have to be beaten and killed. That's unfair. And I think the most unfair thing of all is that Jesus had to take the penalty for our sin. Sin that wasn't his. And he had to have that penalty poured out on him. And. I want to make a point here. That I don't think a lot of people fully realize. The penalty for our sin is death. But it's not just about physical death. It's about spiritual death. And. God's wrath. Needs to be poured out against sin. So. When I don't know, Eric, if you're typing on my account, but I keep saying Cassandra Simmons is saying this and this and this, and I'm not typing, so it's not me, guys. So if any heresy is on the screen, it's not me. <laughs> um, um, sorry, okay. So here was this 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 God who needs to pour out wrath when there's sin, and Jesus. When he died, he he underwent the physical punishment for sin, which is physical death. But he also went through the spiritual punishment for sin, which is spiritual death. Spiritual death is complete separation from God. And he had the entire wrath of God poured out onto him in that moment. We will never understand what that means because we're not even going to get the wrath that we individually deserve poured out on us because we're saved but jesus a perfect man unlike us not only had the wrath of cassandra poured out on him but the wrath of every single human being poured out on him every single sin that every single human has ever committed in the past in the present or the future all that wrath poured out on him when he died or as he was dying i'm not going to go theological on it but it happened that day and that is unfair. (laughs) We cannot even imagine what that is like. I can't even give you a metaphor or a story to help you conceptualize it, but that is the most unfair thing ever. God should not have had to go through that. He didn't deserve it. God handling his own wrath against himself. This is a immortal God who is all-powerful and he is so holy that his reaction to sin is so averse because sin is so opposite to what he is. And so he takes all that wrath and distaste and then he pours it on himself. That's not fair. And we very, very seldom think about that. We think about everything that's unfair in our lives, but we don't think that we have a God who relates to that. He knows what it is to undergo unfair things. If anyone has gone through anything that is more unfair than any of us have ever gone through, it is Jesus Christ. And so once again, as he has done with so many different things, he put himself in a situation so that he could relate to us. Just like he can understand betrayal, just like he can understand physical hurt and temptation, he can also understand what it is to experience situations that are unfair. But here's the thing. I don't know if any of you still think, yeah, but... My situation still feels really unfair. And God is all powerful and wonderful. So Connie just like, help me out. Connie, get me out of this. And there's a profound statement in what I'm about to say. And it might sound a little crazy, but God never, ever promised that he would be fair. Never. Um, he's never called himself fair. And I found something interesting and I want to pose this as a question. So if you have a guess answer, you can unmute, but can anyone guess how many times the word fair is used in the Bible? And that's excluding fair as in, oh, she was fair and had lovely fair hair. Fair as in. The fear we're talking about, which is, it's not right, it's terrible. How many times do you think that word appears in the Bible? Any guesses? Nothing? Sorry, Rachel. Two. Two. That's too much. (laughs) Zero. I
2: almost said zero. Dang it.
0: Zero times. I mean, I was trying to go for a dramatic moment with counting it, but when I counted zero, I was like... Whoa, <laughs> that really makes a point. Um, now, depending on the translation you use, you might find it. So I did a parallel Bible search thing just to make sure I wasn't going to lie to you and make a dramatic point that was inaccurate. And there is one verse in uh, Deuteronomy twenty five fifteen that maybe a possible translation there could be fair. But all it's talking about is, uh, having a fair scale, you know, the scales where you put things on each side and they, they weigh it, it's talking about having a fair scale. Um, and there could be a different word used there. I think they use have equitable correct. scales or something. Um,
2: yeah, correct, be correct.
0: Okay. And so that is like one time, maybe it could be used. And there's one other time uh, where I found the word fair, but it was only one translation. And it's a translation you probably won't know. It's, I think the Scriptures 2009, which is like a Jewish translation. Um, It's the only place where fair can be used. And I would say it was okay for them to use it, even though they're better words. But this is what the verse says. I found it so funny. Here's the verse it's in ezekiel thirty-three, seventeen. 17 and the children of your people have said the way of yahweh is not fair but it is their way which is not fair so the only verse it could maybe be used in is a verse where people are calling god not fair so nowhere in the bible is there a verse that we can use to say that god is fair or that god has called himself fair that God says life will be fair, not even for the righteous. However, um, I looked up the word just, how many times that appeared in scripture? And I found it 206 times. That's just the word just, not the word justice, just the word just, 206 times. And the problem is we confuse the word fair with just. And we think those are synonyms, but they're not. They're very different words. God never calls himself fair, but he does call himself just. And we're going to read quickly three of those scriptures. Um, Can I ask Alyssa, if you don't mind, can you look up Revelation 15 verse 3? And then I'm going to read Isaiah 45 verse 21. And Rachel is going to read Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Okay, so I had it, and then I turned to John 6. So give me a second. Isaiah 45, verse 21. It's, it's a long verse, so I'm only going to read the ending. Um, Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord... And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And then Rachel, if you can unmute and read Deuteronomy 32 verse 4.
2: Okay. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he.
0: Thank you. And then Revelation 15 verse 3. Just and true are your ways. Uh, Those are just three, but 206 times uh, the word just is used. That's excluding the word justice. So obviously, I feel like God's trying to make a point here. Not fair, but just. And so I guess the question is what is the difference, right? Because they've always seemed to kind of be synonyms. So here's a very rough. Definition for you. Fair means that both sides get what is equal. Just means that moral good always wins. So, fair, both sides get what is equal. Just means moral good always wins. All right. So, something can be fair but not just and the reverse something can be just and not fair. Here's an example, something that is fair, but not just would be a trial where the jury is listening to the case of a murderer and it's a fair trial. Both sides get to present their cases equally. They heard from both sides. The evidence was presented from both sides. It was a fair trial. But the jury goes and deliberates and they condemn this man. They say he's guilty when actually he wasn't. That is a situation that was fair but not just. Now we can have a situation that is just but not fair. And there's actually an example of that in scripture. So I'm going to read it. It's uh, one of the parables uh, in Matthew chapter 20. Sorry for taking long. If I had to put bookmarks in every scripture, there'd be so many bookmarks that it would defeat the point of a bookmark. Um, Matthew 20 verse 1 to 15. So it's a little wrong. Uh, wrong, long. (laughs) Um, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, so a certain payment per day, um, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go to the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These lost men have only worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree for me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this lost man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own goods? And I'll stop there. So summary, there was a guy with a lot of cash who wanted people to work for him. So he hired some people in the morning and he said, I'm going to pay you $100 to work for the day. And they're like, cool. And then... He went out at like 9 o'clock and he's like, hey, I want some more workers. You want to work for me? I'll pay you $100. Cool. They work for him. He went out at 3. He went out at 5. He went out at 6. And he hired people each time. And each time he's like, I'm going to pay you a denarius or $100 uh, to work for the day. And everyone agreed to it. And then when they all came to get their payments, everyone got what they were promised, a denarius. But then the guys who worked early in the morning were like, that's that's not." fair? Like, I've worked the whole day. How can you give these guys who literally came here at 6pm at night, worked for one hour and went home? How are they getting an entire day's pay? That's not fair. But it was just. It was morally right. They agreed to get paid a certain amount of money. They were paid a certain amount of money. It was just. But it wasn't fair, right? It didn't feel fair to them. So, We often use those words interchangeably, but deep down, they mean two completely different things. And so I want to put to you that the question of is God fair is wrong. We shouldn't ask that we shouldn't be asking is God fair. What we should actually be asking ourselves is this. Do I really want God to be fair? Do I really want God to be fair? And I put to you that if things were fair, the amount of times that you would win would be far less than the times that you would lose. And I'm going to give you some examples of that. Um, Anybody here ever gotten a speeding ticket that they felt was unfair? (laughs) Would you like to share your story? I see some hands. Are you gonna share? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'll share mine real quick. So I was actually on my way home one day and I was, I just gotten off of 440 onto 24 and anybody who knows that area there's this random spot where they make you go 55 but everybody on 24 is going 8 because eventually it turns into 70 and that's just how it is and you know and 24 has all those, you know, huge semis, always, you know, everybody takes I-24, and so there's just a lot of, um, semis and heavy traffic, and they're all going fast, so I was getting off at the exit, and there was an unmarked, and I just sped up to 70, and he pulled me over, and he goes, oh, you know, it's, uh, 55 over here, and it's like, people are right there, right now, going 80. You know, and I'm on a motorcycle and I told him, I was like, if I was to go 55 on I-24 on a motorcycle where all these semis are passing me, there, I am way more likely to get in an accident than somebody, you know, if I was, if, 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 if. I mean, I'm just like one single person and tons of people are constantly passing you. That's the most dangerous thing. You kind of just go with the flow of traffic. Um, so yeah, I got a speeding ticket over going 70 miles an hour when everybody else is going 80.
0: All right, thank you. Uh, you don't have to tell your story, but is there anyone else just by putting your hand up? You ever gotten a ticket that you didn't feel was fair? Wow, you guys are all great drivers. That's amazing. We're just good at hiding it. Um, but... just but not fair eric says Corey. <laughs> um deanna i have talked my way out of them mm, okay <laughs> it's because you're pretty girl <laughs> you got a pretty face like don't give me a ticket <laughs> uh, oh they knew her dad okay mm, that's a good no
2: the guy out of here." And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> dang. Uh, yeah.
0: That's nice. So bringing this back to- I was late to, for a midterm oh, and the
2: cop was like, are you late for school? And I was like, yes. And he was like, you're going 19 over. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And he was like, go to court next month. I was like, okay.
0: <laughs> so yeah, some some situations you at least felt were unfair. like. And I'm not saying that you weren't going over the speed limit, but in that moment, you could maybe justify it, right? Like I didn't see the sign or literally the sign to go 10 miles an hour more is like 10 feet ahead. I'm so sorry that I sped up right now. Um, and I don't know. I know Eric once also got a speeding ticket because he was apparently going like 30 past the school at like 8 a.m. But there was no kids and he didn't even know there was a school there. But they're like, yeah. You're getting a ticket. I just haven't.
1: I totally forgot that one. I really (laughs) wish I would have said that one. That was unfair. I was off my way to the gym, and I got pulled over at like seven fifty five or no 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 it was like eight ten. So five minutes before the light went off, and I was going underneath the speed limit for that area, but because it was a school zone, and I didn't even know it was a school zone. I got a school zone ticket, a speeding ticket, and all fun stuff. So that one, that one was unfair. Because there's no kids walking around.
0: (laughs) So in those situations when you were given a ticket and you felt it was unfair, let's say that we lived in a world where everything was fair. That would mean that every time you got one of those tickets that you felt was unfair, you would get your money back for those situations. But fair means everything is equal. Therefore you would get a ticket for every time you weren't caught and you went over the speed limit. And I'm talking about one mile per hour over the speed limit, because the law says if you're over, it's wrong, right? So every time you have ever driven even one mile over the speed limit, you would get a ticket. In exchange, we would wipe out your tickets that you did get that you felt were unfair, okay? Another scenario. I drive for Uber full time and I live eight miles. (laughs) It's wrong. Disobey <laughs> obey the law. <laughs> I'm very strict on like speed limits. Like I always tell Eric, as a Christian, we need to obey the laws of the land. And if they said 60, we go 60. <laughs> oh, but even I sometimes go over by accident because I don't realize what's happening because I'm too busy worshiping in my car.
2: <laughs> Sorry, Eric. The
0: Bible says Conf- confess your sins to one another. So I'm just doing it for you. Um, I'm from Florida. We don't even use turn signals. Don't even get me started on turn signals. Like I, I get so angry in my car when people don't use them. Guys are making me rage here. (laughs) All right. So another example would be, um, at work. I don't know if any of you ever got called out by your boss ever for something and you're like, Oh my word, this is unfair. Like, even if you were kind of doing something wrong, but you're like, Oh, the one time I was talking to my coworker, she comes out and she's like, eh, you need to sit at your desk and work. You're talking like, Oh my gosh, I work so hard. Like, how dare she, or, um, you know, you did something wrong. You made a mistake, you know, and you get called out for it. It's like, Oh, I work so hard and this one time I make a mistake. They call me out on it. It's so unfair. So, okay, you want to live in a world where everything is fair. Okay, we'll take back every time that's happened to you. Your boss will come, give you an apology. We'll even give you a $100 bonus for every time that you were called out mistakenly by your boss. But it's fair, right? So it's equal. That means every time you did something wrong at work and you weren't caught, you now need to be punished for. That means every time you logged onto Facebook or watched a YouTube video you shouldn't have or spent way too long at a co desk when you shouldn't have, and deep down you know that you spent at least three hours today talking if you added up all those 15 minutes together. All those days where you kinda don't really get anything done even though you're sitting at your desk because you, your mind is just like really not focusing, No one knows it's going on, right? So you get away with it. You still get the pay for the day, but you really did maybe 30 minutes of work the entire day. That's not fair. So do you want it to be fair? Do you want to get docked pay for every minute you don't focus on your work? Do you really want what's fair? And now let's move this over to Christianity, right? Let's relate this to God. Do you really want God to be fair? Let me, let me paint to you what that'll look like because thank goodness he's not fair because our lives would look a lot differently. In Psalms 103 verse 10, it says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities." Thank goodness. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans six 23 says the wages of sin is death so that means everyone has sinned the wages of sin is death but God hasn't paid us what we deserve which is not fair so let's make it fair okay all of sin wages of sin is death therefore everyone must die and Again, we're going back to... This is not just about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death here, right? This is... You are... Dying spiritually. Which means separation from God forever. It means the wrath of God that should have been poured out... Well, was poured out on Jesus will now be poured out on you. That's fair. So... Do you really want what's fair? Like... If God is fair, we all need to die. That's eternal separation from God. We all go to hell. So we don't want him to be fair. In fact, like, I would say most of us hope he isn't even just. And we'll get there. But let's break it down. Okay? I'm sorry, I'm not reading your messages at this point. Um, fair. Fair. If God is fair, he has two, two options. Okay. <laughs> Alyssa's is laughing at me. Option one. Remember, fairness equals equality. Equality. So, yes, I'm going to put you in a timeout. <laughs> um, equality means everyone is treated equal. Okay. If everyone is treated equal, God has only two options. Option one everyone goes to hell no one wants that (laughs) not even god wants that okay but we have a problem if god sends everyone to hell let's say he's fair and he sends everyone to hell he can't be loving he can't be forgiving there's no way for him to show us his love there's no way for him to show us forgiveness because that would be unfair okay So if he picked option one, he has a problem. If I send everyone to hell, I cannot be loving and I cannot be forgiving. So let's go to option two. Everyone goes to heaven. Now you guys may be going, yeah, that's the right option, God. Let's pick that one. Right? Okay. But here's the problem. Just like here, when if God sent everyone to hell, he couldn't show that he was loving, kind, and forgiving. If he sends everyone to heaven, he cannot show that he is just and righteous. And there might be some of us who still feel like, so what? <laughs> like, can't he just send everyone to heaven? Why does Why does he have to show justice? Why Why must there be punishment? Let me ask you, if, your spouse was raped, would you be okay with the guy walking free? If your child or your mother was murdered, would you be okay with the murderer getting away with it? And if some of you are like really deep Christian and you're like, yes, I would forgive them. And want nothing bad to come upon them. Which technically we should be like deep down. Let me ask you this. What about uh, child trafficking? Okay. I was listening to a sermon the other day. Where uh, this organization, a Christian organization that was set up in Nepal. Caught a trafficker who trafficked 20,000 children a year out in Nepal. Would you be okay if when he walked into court, the judge was like, eh, it's all right. You can go, buddy. I'm going home. I would hope that all of you would want justice for those children. If if not your spouse or your child or your mother, you know, if you're righteous enough to not want justice for them. I hope you would want justice for the hundreds of thousands of children who are trafficked every year. And if you being evil because we're all evil in comparison to God. If you being evil want justice, how much more so a completely holy and good God, how can he not want justice? So God had a bit of a dilemma, not that he was sitting there going, but in human terms, he had a dilemma. He couldn't send everyone to hell and be loving and kind and forgiving. He couldn't send everyone to heaven and be just and righteous. So how did he fix the problem? Grace. You see, justice is getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So what does God do? He says, I need to satisfy justice, so I send my son. I take all the punishment that these people deserve. I pour it on him, and therefore, my justice requirement is fulfilled. I am still just because I have punished sin, but I can show love and forgiveness through grace. And so, we don't want God to be fair. And as Christians, We don't want him to be just, at least not to us. (laughs) And so we accept grace. And that grace nullifies the the requirement of fairness. If we have grace, we don't need God to be fair. Because grace is better than fairness. Fairness means everything is equal. Grace means you get more than you deserve. Every good thing, every blessing that you have in your life, You don't deserve it. I know that might sound really harsh. And that's why it sucks that this had to be the first lesson of the first Bible study. Because it's really not easy to talk about this and like dance around the issue. But deep down, we don't deserve anything. We didn't even deserve salvation. But God gave it to us. And yet, we still want more. Sometimes I think we're pretty greedy. We didn't deserve salvation. The greatest gift that God could ever give. He gave it to us. But then when we don't have all the other wants and needs on our list, we complain. That's not fair. Here's a God who gave more than we could ever deserve and still blesses us every day with food, clothing, family, a free country, internet, like so many blessings. And then when one blessing is taken away, we say, God is not fair. You're right, he's not fair. He's not fair. He's extremely gracious and wonderful and loving. But I know that for many of us deep down, that doesn't take away the pain, right? If you are going through a situation that is unfair or even unjust and that hurts, that it's affecting you personally, everything I just said now probably doesn't mean anything to you. You can accept it intellectually with your head, but it doesn't penetrate your heart. Christ promised us, promised us that as Christians persecution would come. And I want you to get out your head. That persecution is just that typical picture of like a missionary in the middle East who's put in prison or crucified that's persecution. But persecution comes in many forms. It comes through losing your job. It comes through getting sick, really sick. It comes through you not being able to pay your bills. It comes through you having a relationship with someone that got really, really damaged that you can't fix. Or at least you feel like you can't fix. Persecution comes in many forms. And it it hurts. And I know Rachel and I have been talking a lot lately about The balance between like faith and believing that God's got me, everything's gonna be great, everything's gonna be good. And then the reality that sometimes that doesn't happen. And I'm gonna share with you guys what I use in my life for situations that happen that I feel are unfair or wrong, or when I'm suffering or when just things around me aren't going in the way I want them to go. And it could be something that's like short term, like, okay, this just happened today. Or it could be something that's been going on. It could be sickness. It could be losing a job. It could be a fight I'm having with my husband that's gone on for months or whatever it may be. I'm going to give you um, a, I think I made six, six steps that I go through when I'm going through something terrible. Um, And this is how I deal with it. And I I hope that this will help you deal with it. And I'm not a note taker, like I don't care how great the pastor preaches, I'm probably not gonna take notes, but you might wanna take this down these six points just because uh, it's a great reference point for you to go through the next time something terrible happens. I will say that my personal opinion, 80% of the bad things that happen to us fall in the first two categories and can be solved in the first two steps. But there are things that go into three, four, five, six. Um, and so the order is, in pers- is important as well. I go through them in order um, so that I, I don't skip an important step and then think, oh, I'm over here. And you'll understand what I said. Anyway, so number one, when something bad happens to me, I ask myself, is there sin in my life? Because sometimes bad things happen to you because you're sinning. And that's not necessarily because God is punishing you, but because sin has repercussions. Sin has consequences. And so... Whenever something bad happens in my life, the very first thing that I do is I get on my knees and I ask God, is there sin? Holy Spirit, please, if I'm sinning, reveal it to me so that I can repent and turn from it so that this bad situation that's going on can stop. Um, If you think that sin doesn't cause bad situations, uh, especially when it comes to health things, I know some people probably think that sin has nothing to do with health. And I would say that many times it does, not every time, and we'll get to those in later steps, but many times sin does even affect people's health. And this may seem crazy, okay? Um, So I'm going to put this to you. I'm not going to read you all the scriptures, but as you're going through the gospel, I want you to notice something. When Jesus heals someone, he usually says to them, go and sin no more. Why does he say that straight after he heals them? Could it be that whatever they were suffering from, that ailment, was perhaps caused by a sin? He doesn't say it every time, but he says it sometimes. Um, There is another verse, I should have looked it up, I don't know why I didn't. And if someone's like really good with the phone and they want to look it up, you can. I think it might be in James, but it's the verse that speaks about uh, if someone is sick, let them go to the elder and let them anoint with oil and and pray over them. If you can find me that scripture, just unmute and shout it to me Um, because I believe there it speaks about sin as well, even though it's speaking about, about healing. Rachel, do you have it? Or are you just nodding because you know what I'm speaking about.
2: Uh, I know what you're speaking about, but I'm looking it up right now. Okay, great. It is in James. Um, wow, the one time my Bible app isn't working.
0: I don't know why I didn't look it up. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, wait, I found it. I found it. Um, okay. Mm, okay, great. So it's in James 5, verse... 14 to 15. Is anyone among you sick? Sorry. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Note the elders there are praying for someone who's sick, but there's an indication that In that moment, if he's sinning, they'll be forgiven. Sin can lead to sickness. Not always, but it can. Sin can obviously lead to other bad scenarios. I mean, if you steal and you go to jail, that's a sucky scenario, but the sin led to the consequence, right? Um, I'm going to read some some other verses that might seem a a little off topic. Uh, but I think you'll see how they relate after that. After I explain them, there are two scriptures that I'm going to read. I'm sorry. I needed to have a drink of water quickly. And it's both written by Paul and he's speaking about, um, people who are sinning and he hands them over to Satan Sounds extreme, right? I know. But I'm going to read them to you. 1 Corinthians uh, 5. Lost my place. Uh, 5, 1 to 5. Okay. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, I as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into a theological conversation of what destruction of the flesh means, because it could mean a lot of things. But I think we can all agree that whatever it means is bad. Okay? Like, I don't want to go through destruction of the flesh. Like, if someone says to me, hey, you want to experience destruction of the flesh? I'm not going to say, what is that? I'll be like, no. It's fine. No thanks. Um, And so here is this man who is sinning and and living in sin. This is not a once-off, oh, he made a mistake, repented and moved on. This is a man who's continually sinning, sinning, sinning. And, and, And Paul says, deliver this guy to Satan for destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved. So my interpretation of this is let Satan do some horrible stuff to this guy that we won't know what it is because Paul never told us. And in doing so, it makes this guy think, whoa, this really bad stuff is happening. Why? Oh, I'm sinning. Let me stop so that I'm not delivered to Satan anymore in this destruction of the flesh, whatever that may be, whether it was illness or bad things happening to him, whatever it was, when he stopped sinning, this thing would stop. <clears throat> There's another scripture, uh, basically the same. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 to 20. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have shup- suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he says, have faith in a good conscience, which some people don't have. And then he names them, talk about naming and shaming, right? He names the guys and he says, deliver them to Satan. And so I feel like we can get from this picture, that there is a sense of when you're doing something bad, not a once-off, I made a mistake. When you're living in this sin, you've kept doing it. And you might even be blind to it. You might not even know you're doing it, but it's something you're doing all the time. It allows Satan to do something in your life. And so that is why the first thing I do when something bad happens is I say, God, have I sinned? Did I do something wrong? Is there something I can repent of? Okay? If the Holy Spirit does not convict me of anything, I trust that he would have been faithful to do so. And so if he hasn't, I am over step one and I go to step two. Because then I'm like, okay, it's not because of sin. So then step two, the second question I ask myself, I say, is this an attack from Satan? So not being delivered to Satan because I did something wrong, but just is Satan attacking my life? Okay, um, examples of this in scripture to back up this point, persecution against the church, like not even just in scripture, but till this day. The fact that the church around the world is being persecuted, being people being imprisoned, tortured, killed, they're not sinning, but bad stuff is happening to them. Why? Because Satan is after them. Satan doesn't want them to do the good they're doing, he doesn't want them to spread the gospel. And so Satan attacks them. So sometimes bad things are happening in your life and they're not because you did something wrong, but maybe because you're doing something right. I always laugh because I will maybe go through a season where my relationship with God kind of sucks. And then I'll like, okay, no, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to really focus on it. And it starts going better. And the moment my relationship with God starts going better, bad things start happening in my life. And I laugh every time. I'm just like, I know it's you, Satan, but you're not going to mess up my relationship with God. Like I'm, I'm headed in this direction. Um, and uh, I'm going to give you some other examples in scripture too. I know this is a lot of scripture, but I don't want you to think I'm just making up these points like willy nilly and have no theological grounds for them. Um, 1 Peter uh, 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So, Peter here is telling us that Satan is looking for someone to devour. He's like, be be careful. He's looking to destroy someone. He wouldn't tell you to be careful if there was nothing to be careful of. If Satan couldn't affect your life in any way, he wouldn't have said that. And if it was because of sin, he would have been like, Hey guys, stop sinning so Satan can stop, like attacking you. And there are other verses that say that, but in this instance, that's not the case. Um, then, um, I was gonna ask Rachel to read this, but I'm worried about translation ruining my points again. <laughs> I have the Bible app. Where
2: I can give King James first.
0: Okay, yeah. Can you get New King James for? It's long though. Are you okay reading something long? Yeah, I can read. I went to college. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh Daniel ten, verse one to thirteen. And in the meantime, I'm gonna read Ephesians six, very, very, very famous scripture. I could probably quote it off by heart, but I won't, just in case. Uh Ephesians six verse twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here's a verse that's very overt. It's telling you this battle that we're fighting in the earth, it's not just, you're not just sick. You're not just losing your job. You're not just losing your friends and your family or getting attacked. Like, this is not a physical thing. These things are spiritual. A spiritual war is happening around you. Satan is trying to destroy you. And so be cautious and be aware that you're fighting what is a spiritual battle. Um, and that Ra- what Rachel's going to read now, I don't know how many of you know this scripture, but, um, and I'll explain it after she reads it, but Daniel is praying And he's going through a rough time, to put it lightly. And he's praying about it. And he doesn't see anything happening immediately. But then he figures out why. And Rachel's going to read it. And hopefully you'll see what happens. But if you don't, I'm going to explain it. So, Rachel, go ahead. Okay. Uh, 10, 1 through 13, right? Yeah. Okay. In
2: the third year of... Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month as i was by the side of the great river that is the tigris i lifted my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of euphaz his body was like is it barrel 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 um his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like torches of fire his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for i had been left alone there with the kings of Persia.
0: Thank you. Um, that was a lot but dumbed down version of it. Uh, Daniel had some visions, some bad stuff was going on and he was praying and fasting and crying out to God about this terrible stuff And 24 days went by where nothing happened, like nothing. You didn't hear from God, nothing changed. And then on the 24th day, an angel appears and says to him, God heard you day one. I was sent to you on day one, but on my way to you, because angels are not God. They're not everywhere all the time. They have to travel. They have to go. So he's like, on my way to you, the Prince of Persia. Now he's not speaking about a man here. Um, this is a demonic principality called the Prince of Persia. And if you don't believe that, just think about how could a human being stop an angel from going somewhere. Okay. So the Prince of Persia, this demonic stronghold, stopped this angel from getting to Daniel to give him the answer that he was seeking. And this angel could not get past until Michael, the archangel, who's in charge of God's armies came and fought against him, beat him. And then the angel could go deliver the message. So here's a picture of where a spiritual war was going on. When all the human beings saw was, wow, my situation really sucks. And God is not saying anything. Anyone ever had that you're praying. God is silent. Nothing is changing. (laughs) All right. For all you know, God heard you on day one, but there's a war going on and help is coming, but you need to keep praying so that that help can get there. Um, I can't prove this from scripture, but I've heard people say, and I like to think that it's true, that your prayer is like the fuel that's used to win that war. So... Um, I've read some books and again I can't prove this from scripture I think it's a very nice picture to think of it like this but um, God will always win but he uses prayers to determine the outcome of certain things so when people are praying in that spiritual war angels start to win and Satan starts to lose and so God gains the victory that he already has Um, but when you stop praying God has chosen not to move unless we pray. And so it's not that God can't win. It's not that he hasn't won overall. It's that in your situation, when you're not praying, God's like, I have told you that prayer is the mechanism through which I move. Bring your prayers to me, bring your supplications to me, and I will answer them. If you stop praying, you start to lose. So take courage in Daniel's situation. 24 days. And I mean... You might say, oh, well, my situation's been 24 years. Okay. But as well, Daniel, for those 21 days, because I think it said 21 days that he was fasting and that he was fasting, praying on his knees, on his face, on the ground. Like I have never for 21 days straight, not eaten anything, not drank anything and only morning till night been on my face in front of god crying out for victory in a certain area i hope i get there i haven't got there yet but he was doing that and it took 24 days for that victory to happen so i think it's reasonable that sometimes if we're not doing that if we're splitting that out over months or years it's not that the victory is not coming it's that If god wants x amount of prayer and you're praying this little it might take a lot longer for that victory to happen is if you condense that and compact it into some serious supplication so take heart in your situation it's not necessarily that god is not answering it's that your answer already came on day one it just hasn't gotten to you yet Um, so that's number two so number one was did I sin? Number 2 was, is this an attack? And I would love to go into a whole teaching on spiritual warfare and how if God says, "Yeah, it's an attack," what you can do about that. But there's no time for that right now. Um there's great books out there. Hopefully one day I will teach on this. I want to teach on this at some point, but for now, your prayers are sufficient enough. Like prayer is the biggest form of spiritual warfare anyway. Um so know that your prayer in that situation if god says yes this is an attack from the enemy you're not doing anything wrong um he's just mad at you right um you can use prayer as a form of spiritual warfare to combat that uh before i go to step three i want to like distribute some scriptures to some people to read uh do you mind having a scripture all right i'm going to give you ecclesiastes three one to eight and don't read it right now but just get it ready and then deanna do you mind reading yes no you don't want to read you do want to read deanna i said your name i don't know if you heard it (laughs) do you mind reading you okay reading (laughs) uh john 9 1 to 3 not not right now just get it ready john 9 1 to 3 and then helene will you read
2: yeah that's fine
0: okay uh second corinthians 12 verse 7 to 10 Uh, don't read it now. They're coming. I just don't want us to pause when we get there. All right. So if God has said to me, it's not an attack from Satan. I go to step three. My third question is, is this a test? Um, sometimes we go through things that are not because we're being attacked by Satan necessarily. Uh, or because uh, we've sinned. Sometimes it's just a test. Now, sometimes in that test, God is allowing Satan to attack us as part of the test. And other times it's just purely a test from the Lord. And we're going to see some examples of that. Uh, First example, we're not going to read the scripture, but you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham really wanted a child. He didn't have one when he was super, super old. God finally gave him a child, a child he'd been waiting for his whole life. Then he tells him, sacrifice your son. And Abraham... Goes to do it. Luckily, God intervenes and says, don't worry, wasn't serious. It's okay. That was a test. Like, in that moment, that was a bad scenario. Like, I'm about to lose my son. Like, I have to kill my son. Not only am I committing murder, but I'm losing my only child that I waited almost 100 years to have. I'm about to lose him. Um, and so, pretty bad scenario. But it turned out at the end it was a test. And he passed it and everything was hunky-dory afterwards. Okay. Uh, Another example. uh, Luke 22 verse 31 to 32. Uh, And the Lord said, this is Jesus. Simon, Simon, which is Peter. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So um, in this scenario, Jesus is warning his disciples that Satan is about to try them. He's about to make them go through some stuff. And it's going to be a test of their faith, right? And Jesus encourages them and tells them t- it's, if, if you stand firm, I'm praying that you will stand firm. It'll, it'll be over with. And you'll strengthen your brethren after that, but you're going to go through that. Jesus wasn't like, don't worry, I'm fighting him for you. It's not going to happen, dude. No, he was like, it's going to happen. You have to get through it. It was a form of a test. Uh, Unfortunately, Peter and the other disciples failed. Uh, Technically, only John, in my opinion, passed the test. John was the only disciple who didn't abandon Jesus. He when Jesus was arrested, John followed him. John never left him, not for a moment. Everyone else abandoned him. And then Peter, on top of abandoning him, um, denied him. So in in that moment, they failed, but Jesus had prayed for them and they obviously made right with him again. And uh, Peter did fulfill this prophecy that Jesus said, you will strengthen your brethren. He was the first one to go out and, and preach the gospel. Um, And then uh, this is probably the most famous example of a test in the entire Bible. Uh, In the book of Job 1, verse 6 to 12, Job was already righteous man, if you didn't know. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it? Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does God fear? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, And around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So... Satan knew that Job was this amazing guy. And basically, even though he didn't use the words test, that's basically what Satan said. He was like, let's do a test. You've protected Job. You've blessed him. So let's take away everything you've ever done for him. Everything good. Every blessing. And let's see what he does. Let's see if he's still a righteous, holy man then, right? Um, Job obviously reasonably passed the test i mean he didn't do too bad he complained a little but you know he didn't curse god he didn't like blame god he he knew he wasn't in sin it's very interesting if you read the whole book of job everyone is saying to him step one right you sin you sin you sin that's why you're suffering and even so even they had an understanding that sin causes suffering sin causes disease but job knew he hadn't sinned so job was past step one He's just like, I know I didn't sin. unfortunately for Job, he never got to step three and he never thought "Mm, maybe I'm being tested. Um, But that's probably the most clear picture we have in scripture of uh, a righteous person going through so much bad stuff, but it's a test of their faith and be encouraged that if you are at step three, if you're not step one, if you're not step two and you're at step three, and you feel like this is a test, Remember the story of Job. Everything that was taken to him was not only restored, but restored even more than he had before. So take courage in that. Um, If I don't feel like it's a test, then I go to step four. Question number four. Is this a season? And the verse we're going to use to support this, Jermichael, if you will read it, is Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 to 8, and you're muted Okay.
2: All right. For everything, there is a season. A time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh.
0: There's no super divine reason or test behind it necessarily, but it's just a season. And that might not sound really great, but the encouragement with that is it's a season, which by definition means it will pass. And God is a gracious and good God. And I know that even when we're in the seasons where we're on the negative side, because that scripture was like, this is the good stuff, this is the bad stuff, right? When you're on the bad stuff side, where you're mourning, where there's war, where there's confusion, where there's lack of understanding, where bad things are happening, for a season, there's' say a good season. so naturally this is going to end, and you're going to move over to this other side at some point. But in this season, God can still teach you things, and so embrace those seasons because they're gonna develop something in you that is good and holy. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard people refer to a wilderness season, it's just a season where they don't hear from God. Not necessarily that something is going really bad in their life, they just, they don't feel anything in worship, they, their prayer life feels dry, even though they're trying to pray. They're really trying to pray, but they feel nothing, they're not hearing from God, and they call it their wilderness season. Sometimes God deliberately allows us to go through a season so that we uh, drive our roots deeper into him Uh, a good picture of this uh, taken from one of my uh, favorite uh, sermon series the redemptive gifts um, is there's this analogy of this one tree that grows uh, i think it's near the jordan and there's like really harsh winds in that area and it blows really like they're, they're scorching and they're powerful and so most trees and plants will die in this season where these strong heavy hot winds come and so any gardener who is in that area what they will do is during good seasons they will um artificially stress the trees so they will cut their branches they will also like uproot them and transplant them and what happens is it stresses the tree out so what the tree does is its it's roots were like this deep and it probably would have never gone deeper than that but it stressed it out and they maybe put it in an area that didn't have that much water so it goes and it like gets down and then they do it again and so it goes deeper and deeper until the point where this tree like the branches are still pretty short because every season they kept cutting the branches shorter and shorter and uh the roots though kept going deeper and deeper and deeper so that when those winds come those scorching winds all the other trees no matter how beautiful and lush and long their branches were they die but this tree that was artificially stressed it has its roots so deep that that wind doesn't affect it it's not moved it's not worried its roots are so deep that it can suck up water so deep in the ground that it doesn't matter if there was a drought for months, it would be completely fine. And so that is a picture of our spiritual life sometimes when we're going through step four, a season that is dry or bad. God sometimes allows us to go through a season that is stressful so that we dive our roots deeper into Him and into His word. And in those seasons, all we see is the branches, right? God cut them again, I lost my job again, I have to start from the bottom again, I lost all my money again, oh, my relationship didn't work out again, like, or my ministry, like, for me, it's my ministry, I'm like, I get to a certain point, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's booming, and then, whoop, nothing again, I'm like, freaking hell, like, (laughs) cut me a break, God, like, I mean, I want branches here, and I was only here, and you still cut me like this, like, you know, give me a break sometimes. That's what it feels like. But the thing is, we see the branches that are here and we don't see that during those seasons, if we're faithful, our roots went deeper and deeper. And he does that so that one day when there comes a time in your life where things are really, really bad, like worse than you could ever imagine, you are fine because your roots are so deep in God and in his word that you cannot be moved. And then... Once your roots are that deep, your branches can grow and grow and grow and you'll be completely fine and fruitful and be able to provide shade and food to all those who come near you. So then, if it's not a season, I go to question number five, um, which is, is this something that will reveal God's glory? Or keep me more dependent on him okay so part of it might link up to step four but i still feel like it deserves its own genre and the scriptures we're going to use for this is john nine verse one to three so deanna if you could read that you're muted
2: sorry
0: So, interesting fact, what did the disciples ask Jesus when they found the guy was blind? It was blind, right? Blind? Okay, I'm just checking. Um, What's the first thing they went to? They said, who sinned? Again, there was an understanding even back then that usually, typically, bad things, even disease, happened as a result of sin. But in this instance, that wasn't the case. In this instance, God said, Jesus said, this wasn't because of sin. This was specifically made like this so that in this moment, God's glory can be revealed. And then he healed him. There might be things in your life that are bad right now. And God is making it so that there will come a moment where all of that, hydro where all of that is completely changed and you have this amazing testimony that will not only give glory to God, but that's gonna convert people and and inspire many other people who have gone through similar situations. And you might think, oh, but I mean, this guy was blind for like a really long time. That kind of sucked. I promise you, that guy, when he was healed, he wasn't thinking back, oh, wow well, Jesus, why didn't you heal me one year ago? Why didn't you heal me 10 years ago? He was so happy that he could see that it didn't matter how long he'd been blind. And that's exactly how it will be in your situation. When that amazing breakthrough, glory to God moment comes, you're not going to go, oh, my word, oh, like, Jesus, why did you take so long? You're going to be like, oh, my word, it happened, it's so amazing. And you'll be so happy. You won't be looking back and thinking how terrible it was. Um... So that links with, is this something that will reveal God's glory? And now we're going to, or is it something that will keep me dependent on him? And that was 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7 to 10. If you can read that. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness.
2: So I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults,
0: hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I
2: am weak, then I am strong.
0: You read that so beautifully it was like a song <laughs> um here's paul this guy's like a champion of the gospel like i mean if there's ever someone you need to live up to but feel super insecure because you're like i can never do that it's paul right and he's saying that here was this messenger of satan a thorn in the flesh so this terrible thing and again Theologians debate, was it a sickness? Was it just someone who was irritating him or trying to destroy his ministry? That's not the point. The point is, something terrible was happening in his life. And he asked God three times, please take this thing away. And God said, no. And what was the reason? It was, there's more than one, but one of the things he pointed out was, he said that I should remain humble because of my pride this thing was given to me so and I mean I can get that right if I was Paul I'd struggle with pride too like I mean hey I wrote more books of the New Testament than any other person I am probably like the best apostle to be honest in terms of like church planting I traveled the world more than anywhere else this guy was intense, right? So, I mean, if one sin he was going to suffer from, it would have been, been pride. Pride is an obvious issue. So what does God do? He doesn't want Paul to live in sin. So he sends this thorn in the flesh, whatever that means. And this thing, even though Paul pleaded God to take it away. And I mean, this is a good Christian guy, right? Why wouldn't God just take it away? God was like, no, this thing is going to keep you humble. This thing is going to keep you dependent on me. This thing is going to be used so that when you feel weak, I will be glorified because my strength is going to come through you. So sometimes there are things in our lives that God is never going to take away. But you need to do uphold it and change your perspective. Because it might be that that very thing is the thing that's going to keep you in line with God. Um, I know this is going to be an extreme story. I don't even know. I should tell it. But I know of a situation where a girl was extremely sick. Like not dying sick, but the kind of sick that you live with your whole life that makes your life extremely painful. But it was only when she became sick that she became totally dependent on God. She changed her life. She gave her life to Jesus. And I don't remember if she came for prayer or something, but... um, she wanted to be healed, and the, the person that was going to pray for her heard from the Lord, and the Lord said, if I heal her, she will run from me. And that might sound extreme, but God doesn't override our will. Like He's not going to say, okay, well, I have her, so I'm going to just like keep her no matter what. She had a, a choice, but God loved her. God wanted her. God wanted her to be saved, and he knew if I heal her, He knew that this specific girl, this is not for everyone, this specific girl would leave the faith. And so he said to this person, you can pray, but I'm not going to heal her because this thing is what is keeping her close to me. And I myself have an incurable disease. I've prayed so many times for God to take it away. I don't know why I have it. I don't see how it brings about his glory. But I've asked him and he hasn't. So either one day it'll be taken away and it'll be this wonderful glory moment. Or it may just be this thing that keeps me humble. That keeps me dependent on God. That keeps me conscious that I'm a human being and I need someone more powerful than me to work in my life all the time. Um, Again, these are exceptions to the rules. This is not super common. That's why it's step five and not step one. That's why I'm like, you have to go through the steps because these steps four through six are usually the extreme cases. They're not the majority of the time what is happening to you, but they can be. And they're usually the best explanations for scenarios that have no other answer. Um, And they give me peace. I mean, if Paul could change the world with this thorn in the flesh and be so joyful and happy and full of life, so can I, so can everyone um and so if you're at step five and you might feel like that's you be encouraged that god is doing something amazing in you and maybe one day you'll be healed and it'll be this amazing glory story or maybe one day you'll have victory and it'll be this glory story or maybe you won't and it'll be the very thing that keeps you from sinning because remember if you live in perpetual sin you're walking away from god and he doesn't want that so sometimes he puts a thorn in your flesh to keep you near him. And that's not a bad thing. It's not. I know it might sound harsh, but it's really not, guys. Um, then the last step, step six. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, if I've gone past that and I still don't feel like that's the case, there is one more step. And that is, God, is this thing that's happening to me Just because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is imperfect, that is marred and tainted by sin and destruction and evil. And sometimes things that happen to us, they're just because the world is full of sin and bad things happen. Um, I'm going to give you two scriptures that are an example of this situation. The first one is 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. And this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. That's very interesting, don't you think? Here's Paul. This is the same guy that his shadow would like fall on people and they'd be healed. And his handkerchief, they would take it and touch people with it and they would be healed. He... Prayed for the sick, they were healed. He raised someone from the dead. Why didn't he just say to Timothy, Yo, Timothy, bro, come over here? Let me put my hand on you so that your stomach can stop hurting and so your frequent infirmity, whatever that was, can stop? Why didn't he? Maybe because we live in a fallen world and sometimes we get sick. Like, if you get the flu, maybe you just got the flu. Like, Satan is not necessarily attacking you. You haven't necessarily sinned. Like I said, I'd still go through all six steps before I get to step six. But sometimes stuff just happens that's bad and it sucks. And there's no deep divine reason for it other than we have sinned. We have all sinned. We corrupted the world. And now the world is in a state of perpetual decay. And that decay affects us. Um, The other scripture for this is uh, Romans 8. Uh, verse 20 to 22 for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of god for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now so this scripture is speaking about how creation nature even around us everything is screaming and crying out for the revealing of the children of god which will be at the end because when that day comes everything that is wrong that includes earthquakes and 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 tornadoes and poverty and anything that is naturally just bad In the world, it will be gone. And so nature itself is crying out. It cannot wait because right now it is subject to futility, corruption, decay. It is messed up. And because it is messed up and we live in a messed up world, some of that filth gets on us too. And again, there's a reason this is the last step. I would say 80% of the things you experience will fall in the first two categories. And the other fifteen to eighteen percent are gonna fall in the rest of them, and then the little that's left over is gonna be this one. Like, and the things that'll fall in this category usually won't be things that are super bad. This for me is stuff like when I stubbed my toe. Satan was not attacking me and telling the table to jump onto my foot. Right? I just stubbed my toe and it hurt. It was over. I got a cold. I got sick. It sucked. It was over. Death. That's a big one. But we all die. If if someone is 80 years old and they die, it's painful. It's a painful situation. But there wasn't necessarily evil forces at work or sin at work. It's just because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen because we live in this fallen world. Um, but in the, that same verse that I just read, there... There is something really beautiful. And, and so throughout all these things, no matter which of those six categories your bad situation falls into, there is hope that you can take. There is something that you can hold on to. And I'll just read you a few verses. I mean, the Bible is full of them. But here are some verses for you. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Probably one of the most common verses that every Christian knows. Well, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. That's a promise that you can hold on to. Even if these bad things are happening, even if it's stage six and it's something that doesn't even make sense, it has no reason, it's just happening. God can use all things, everything that happens, no matter which of the six categories it falls into, he can use all those categories to use for good for you because you love him and are called according to his purposes. Um, and that 's actually the next verse romans eight twenty eight um, um, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes First Corinthians two verse nine says, "I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the mouth of men the things which God prepared for them that love him, so even through bad situations, God is planning good stuff through the bad situations. I want to address the coronavirus for minute because I do feel like some people are really scared um, and worried and so I'm a statistician data person so I want to tell you that all this stuff can be summarized into four things there are only four things that can happen to you through this virus right and it's like a spider diagram so we have coronavirus and then two little legs and here is I got the virus or i didn't get the virus all right so let's go down this one you got the virus there are only two legs that can come out of it as a christian we're not speaking about non-christians now as a christian only two legs so you got the virus step one first leg you get cured you get over it it was a flu you were fine and glory to god you were healed it's a glory story okay or You don't have a quick, easy recovery, and it's painful, and it's bad, but God's glory can still be revealed in it. And that takes back to the the previous six steps that we went through. No matter where it will fall on that, we know that God has a purpose. He has a plan. And even if you or someone you love had to get really sick, if they have a relationship with Christ, God will work that situation to his glory and he will work all things for good. Even that situation that seems really sucky, no matter how sick they get, God can use it for good. And he promises you, he promises you, and he does not lie. If you love him, he will turn all things for good. So that covers if you get it. Now let's say you don't get it, okay? Leg one, you don't get it, but you're affected by it. You lose your job or your marriage was canceled. My co-worker's marriage was canceled because of it. Uh, You didn't get to go on vacation. Something you're affected by it. You didn't get sick, but you were affected. Many of you have been affected by this. Um, And in that situation, again, God's glory can be revealed. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is not sitting there going, I had good plans for you, Jermichael, like, whoa, I mean, I was trying with that job for real, but then this virus happened and now I'm just like, I don't know, I'll come up with something, just give me a week, Jermichael, I just, I gotta, I gotta consult Jesus and we gotta figure something out. God already planned it, God worked it out, God knew exactly what he was doing when he made you change jobs only to lose that job. God is not shocked, confused, he's got it under control. He already planned it. When you got that job and you gloried in God, God in that moment knew what was going to happen this month. And he was not concerned. He still wanted you there. Don't doubt that God wanted you where you were. Don't doubt that you didn't hear from him just because this has happened. I really want you to believe that. Just because you prayed and you felt you heard from God and then it turned bad doesn't mean you didn't hear from God. God. I, when I was an au pair, uh, deciding what family to choose to come to America, I really felt I should choose this one family, but I knew they were going to suck. I didn't know how much they were going to suck till I got here. But they were like devil incarnate, terrible, Satan spawn, horrible people. And I prayed and fasted about coming to America. I prayed so hard and I begged God. I'm like, please don't let me make a mistake. I'm literally uprooting my entire life. I'm leaving my church, my family, my friends, my job, everything I own. And I'm coming to this country with nothing. Are you sure, God? And I felt yes. And I did it. And it sucked, bro. Like three years of sucking so hard. So many times I was like, did I hear from God? Like, why would I have heard yes? And then it sucked so bad. Like, but I can look back now and say, I know that I'm called to be exactly where I am. I would not be speaking to you today if I hadn't become an old parent and worked for Satan's spawn and her children, right? Like <laughs> Thank you for laughing, Alyssa. <laughs> and that all worked together for this moment. And there have been situations and people I've encountered, even just within the last few months, that have affected my life, and I believe I've affected theirs, and that would have never happened. If I'd stayed in South Africa. But in that moment. Not even in that moment. For three years. I was like wow. Did I hear wrong. And I want to tell you. That if you submitted that request to God. If you asked him if you should take that job. And you felt in your spirit. Yes. And I. I I know you Jermichael. I don't know you very well. But I spiritually know you. I know that you don't make decisions lightly. I know that you prayed about it. I know that you would have submitted to God's will. No matter what it was. And. The fact that you lost your job, like, it's not outside of God's will. The same for you, Helene, and anyone else who's lost their job. God is not shocked. He's not confused. He's not scrambling. He's not worried. He has a better plan for you coming. All you need to do is have faith and believe it. He promised that to you. He's not going to leave you abandoned. He's not going to leave you orphaned. He's going to work all things together for the good of you because you love him. That's a promise. And of course, the last rung is you don't get the virus and you don't get affected by it. And then it's glory to God anyway. So literally, no matter which scenario you as a Christian fall in, all of us will have the same end result. God will be glorified and good will come out of our situation. Our stories may be different andrew may get the virus and then miraculously get healed and will glory to god for it i may never get the virus and not lose my job in fact i may even get a bonus right and then glory to god Alyssa, you may get the virus and get really really sick but in that season you will be driven towards god and your joy because i know that you're a person that's full of joy and you show it all the time and it's infectious Someone like you getting sick, really sick, but still being joyful. Do you know what a witness that is to people? That is a way to draw people to Christ. And so therefore God is glorified. His kingdom is extended. And at the end of the day, you'll be made well, even though you had to suffer for a while, you'll be made well. So you still have the same results as all of us. Those who didn't get the virus, but you lost stuff because of it. You are like Job. Stuff was taken away from you. But don't curse God. Don't stress. God has got it all planned out. You will have the same conclusion as all the rest of us. God will work it all out perfectly. Um, I'm going to end with one verse. And it's, the, it's in the same section as the one I read about creation groaning. Um, it's Romans 8 verse 18. And it says, For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And take that verse with you the sufferings that you're going through now will not be comparable to the glory that will be revealed in you. Not, in, not even in Cassandra or Rachel or one of the other Christians on this call, in you. The suffering you go through, whether now, Next year, in 10 years' time, well, the suffering you've been going through for the last 10 years, there will come a time where the glory that will come from that situation will be so glorious that you cannot even compare it to the suffering you had. They won't even be on the same scale. And so I want to encourage you guys with that. And uh, we're going to pray to close out and shut off the video. And then we'll go into individual prayer requests. Um, and I know it's a little awkward because we usually sit and chill and hang out when it's over and I still invite you to do that. I don't know how it's going to work with us all talking together but I do invite you to do that if you want to. No hard feelings if you don't. But um, thank you for taking your time to listen today and know that you're on my heart and I'm praying for you and I'm so grateful that you took time to to listen to our message. So I'm going to pray and then we'll after that go into individual prayer requests. All right. Father God, thank you so much that we could come together. And we trust that your spirit is here with all of us, even though we're not physically in the same room. I know that many of us have been affected by what's going on in the world, either directly or indirectly. Some of us are scared that we may be affected by these things. And I just pray for a spirit of peace to come upon us and to trust absolutely that you are in control. And even when it looks like you're not, I pray. That we will take the verses in your word which speak the truth, which speak the promises and the life that you give us over us and we will claim those truths and those promises. Help us to be a support system to one another and let us be as the early church so if anyone here has anything in need that we can all pitch in and we can help that need and that no one will be alone during this and no one will suffer beyond what they are able to bear because of this father. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that we can trust you. And thank you that you work all things together for good for those who love you, Father. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.